Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, it's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures. Uh, you can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. So this is another episode in our film programmer series on the Cinematic Void podcast, where I'm talking to various film programmers across the country. This one's slightly different because this has to deal with a friend of mine who is a film programmer, but is also on the film exhibition side where he, you know, he basically books films for the company Agfa. He is the theatrical sales director of Agfa. He's also the creator and host of Museum of Hope Video. Please welcome the void, Brett Berg. Brett, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing okay. I just got back from my acupuncturist. I feel a little looser than usual. Um, and thank you for having me on the show and for talking about this topic, because I don't think that enough people talk about it on podcasts. I would love for people to just talk about uh, film programming as often as they talk about film criticism and stuff. I mean, I, I, I love inside baseball and I know you do too. And it just, and this is why I've been excited to be able to just talk. I mean, we talk about this shit all the time when we like meet up anyway, but like just to kind of document. So I guess to kind of just get into it, could you explain what, what it means to be the theatrical sales director of ACFA and what you actually do? Sure. Uh, most people know Agfa as a Blu-ray label and distributed as one of the many partner labels through OCN, Vinegar Syndrome's sister company. And uh, that's perfectly normal for most people to know us because of that, because that's the public facing part. But we also do a lot of lab work for uh, clients and other labels, uh, you know, restoration, scanning work. And then what I do is I take all the theatrical rights that companies like Arrow and Severin, Vinegar Syndrome, let's see, Cult Epics, Troma, Shout Factory, and Sub Rosa, uh, Scream Time. There's just a long list of labels that uh, that we work with. And I email venues all day long, and I try to get our catalog of mostly vintage horror movies onto screens so that rep shows can happen with our catalog. And the catalog is about 1,700 films as we record this in August of 23. And I used to be a film programmer by profession. I was the programming director at CineFamily here in Los Angeles, where you and I are. Mm -hmm. And that uh, I left in 2015 and then eventually uh, came to work for AGFA doing the opposite job of what I used to do. I used to be the venue programmer reaching out to distributors to book movies to put on screen so now i'm the person that those people email to get the <laughs> movies and it's it's been a really fun career to ride both sides of the fence like this and then i also put on um, film shows in la too so i am both an exhibitor and a distributor at the same time I'm one of the few people on earth I guess who can who can say that can you talk about how you began this whole like building up the you know basically taking a lot of the boutique labels that a lot of them had Lucy like theatrical titles and kind of like you know organizing them and getting everyone on the same page like hey I'm gonna make everyone's life easier if there's a one-stop shop for this yeah yeah so Agfa was a two-person team before I joined as the third person this is back in 2017 and right before I joined uh, Sebastian and Joe, who were running it at the time, they had already conferred with Arrow, Severin, and Vinegar Syndrome 
separately, I think, to get theatrical rights because they noticed that uh, whenever they themselves as film programmers wanted to book something, because there's this series Terror Tuesday in Austin where Agfa is based at Alamo Drafthouse, the, the screening series is. And uh, so Joe just knew from personal experience that it was sometimes difficult to get a film that appears on one of these labels to be booked for a film screening. So I don't know quite the early machinations of it. I've never asked actually like <laughs> what was the original spark, uh, but this library of about 150 titles at the time was sitting, waiting for someone to do something with it. And I had just spent several years as a film programmer. So I came into ACFA thinking I know exactly who to reach out to, to sell this library to because all the people that would go to the yearly conference for people who run art house movie theaters called the art house convergence. I went to that every year and I met all the other people who did the thing I did. And then as programmer of a place that did really hard to find movies, often people from all the other venues would email me saying, where did you get that movie? So I just immediately had a, uh, to use an ancient term, a whole Rolodex of people to, I could sell, movies like Santa Sangre and Donnie Darko too. And uh, I don't know, it started from there. And we've reached 1700 titles, not only because the existing label partners kept giving us more titles, but um, we just kept acquiring different partners to the point where now I have about 50 of them. And sometimes it's a library where we get 80 films in a chunk. And sometimes it's a single title that we go after because we know that it's really important to add title X or Y into our repertoire, because we know as programmers, we know certain films will kill with an audience. So we have that knowledge of, to reach out to the people who own the films that kill mm -hmm. an early uh, reach out partnership for us was uh, Arlene Sedaris, who produced all the Andy Sedaris movies like hard ticket to Hawaii and Picasso trigger. I knew from booking hard ticket to Hawaii directly from Arlene that you had to email Arlene to get it so I was like why don't we make that easier and you don't have to field any of those emails anymore you just forward them right to us uh and that worked out great and we restored all the Sedaris movies and we still get to book them it's really fun and then also an early partnership after I came on was Don Coscarelli because I knew as a film programmer at Cinefamily if you wanted to book Phantasm you had to email Don and sometimes he'd get back to you and so I was like you know what, we'll just make it easier for you. And what he said to me at the meeting we had with him, I'll never forget this. He goes, uh, yeah, it's always a hassle. Whenever someone emails me to book Phantasm, I have to send my nephew to FedEx to ship the cans out because I don't want to deal with that anymore. And we're like, perfect. Let us do that for you. <laughs> so that's how our, our, our theatrical stable grew to this size. We were also influenced by a, a company called Park Circus, which is one of six or seven major sources for repertory film bookings. They were an aggregated library of libraries, and that's what we immediately aspired to be. And so we set out to do that on our own terms. And so here we are. Now, primarily, you're mostly just DCPs at the moment, but the, I know AGFA for years had their own like film archive and stuff. And I know it... So when you when someone books with AGFA, the, they still some titles I should say still have the option for 35, but a lot of it's DCP because a lot of this stuff had never had a theatrical 35 millimeter print at any point ever in the U S and if it did, it's right. long, long gone. Yeah. Or bruised and battered or too expensive yeah. or the collector is too weird to let it out or whatever. <laughs> uh, you, you and I have plenty of stories. Of oh yeah. 
of, of the collector game and how you know the only people who collect film prints are people who really 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 love the movies let's just mm-hmm. say yeah it's uh, one thing I want to say about ACFA is because, like, before ACFA kind of consolidated everyone, like, I had to go work individual deals with every single, like, boutique label and, you know, make sure they had stuff because I did a lot of, like, you know, Blu-ray release yeah. premieres and stuff like that. And, like, you know, some I just like the fact that I can look at a list and see, like, all these titles and be like, okay, I know where all these are because it just – it cuts out, like, as – as a film programmer and having been on both sides, when you have to deal with someone that's absolutely insane, that has the rights to a film when, and it's the only thing they have when like, mm-hmm. cause that's how a lot of these titles used to be. It was just like, you know, someone had this and then like you would book and they're like, well, I have the rights and then become all that kind of stuff. So yeah, you, yeah. Uh, I think, are you mainly thinking of one holiday themed title in particular? Well, <laughs> but there is that, but there, there's been other ones, but yeah, there is, I don't know if we can talk about that. We can't talk about that, but we both know who we're talking about. Yes. So <laughs> but yeah, it's it, it's wild. And like, it, it's, it just makes like this side of especially cult film side so much easier. And I, I think Park Circus is a good example because, you know, Park Cir- Circus basically co- co- controls MGM and like all the things MGM owns, which is like Orion and like Canon and things like that. And they, I think they just, I know when Warner got bought out by Discovery, they ended up taking over most of the Warner Brothers repertory, at least the 35 millimeter end of it. So, Oh, yeah, the 35. So uh, what Warner Brothers has done, which no other studio has done, and I don't know if it's better or worse, um, is that they've automated the process of their bookings. So they have a really responsive team, but um, it's not exactly the same kind of relationship that a venue booker has with their distributor necessarily. Yeah. And yeah, I think uh, Park Circus has offloaded all the 35 operation, or no, Warner Brothers has offloaded the 35 to Park Circus to to deal with, which honestly might have freed up more stuff. Yes, I, I definitely has. Like, I mean, not that it was a Warner title, but like the fact that I put a request for Night Game and they're like, ah, we don't have a print. And then Chris from Park Circus wrote about it like, oh, we found one. It's in Iron Mountain. And like when we got that print, it, hit, it was an answer print. It was struck in 2003 of Night Game with Roy Scheider from 89. No idea why in 2003 they struck an answer print, but I'm pretty, <laughs> sh- I'm pretty sure it never had been played. It was like one of the best looking prints I've ever seen. Let's imagine it was like for a DVD release. That, that's, I, I'm assuming it was for the DVD release and then like they just forgot they had it. Now, as you're working in your booking, how many bookings do you look at it a week from like all the venues? Because there is a lot of repertory you know, houses across the country. And there's also micro cinemas and you have people that are just like even doing like little offsite, like bar screenings and things like that. Like what's the number of bookings you're dealing with on a week to week basis? I tend not to think week to week. I think month to month, um, mainly because of uh, this season right now, like late summer as our busiest season, as people prepare for their October seasons, mm-hmm. their venues, um, horror wise, of course. <laughs> uh, but uh month to month like the last two months in a row we got about now it's not the number of emails i'm dealing with necessarily but the number of line items on a ledger that are mm-hmm. individual movie titles i would say about 250 a month wow and that's ramped up because we're in the highest season of the year for us usually so this year uh in the early part of the year is about 200 a month whereas in 2019 with the last good year of data 
bet I had, let's say, uh, it was about like 150. So definitely, I think all the data that I have and all the anecdotal things that I talk about with programmers and distributors makes me feel like more people are going out to rep cinema than in 2019. I fully agree with it. Like I, you know, statistically, this is my best year since I've started doing every Monday. Mm-hmm. And, and I know from talking to like other people, we know, like Mark at the Coolidge and things like that, like their rep titles are just doing astronomical. And what do you think is the shift with like the shift for more like, you know, obviously there's still big theatrical events like, you know, Barbara, Barbieheimer just happened. But, oh, yeah. 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 But the, the first the, the first time I've been to a movie on opening weekend since the 2000s, by the way, which is Barbie. Uh I somehow saw it on the Sunday of its opening weekend and had a good time. And it gave me the fever to go out to more new movies, which I have not felt since the 2000s. Do you, do you think that like, it's basically we're coming out of kind of like the hibernation phase of the post, you know, lockdown world, or do you think it's like people are actually just craving, like going to the movies again and, but they want to go see something that they either feel like that experience is going to be, meant for them or they want to try something new or where do you think it kind of lands there's there's so many different prongs to this uh, pitchfork yeah (laughs) uh let's see okay well first and foremost is yes the lockdown era permanent like permanently changed a generation of movie going for the worse at first and now for the better because okay we're experiencing this big wave of more people going out to rep cinema because of the audience getting younger is a huge one so Say, put yourself in the mindset of someone who is 22 right now. 10 years ago, going out to the movies meant going to see the Avengers with your parents. And now that they're a little bit older and perhaps have disposable income in their pocket to go out and do stuff post-lockdown, a lot of kids uh, are choosing rep cinema because it is such a wide open playing field. Right now, if you're 22, you have access to 10 times uh, as many movies as you and I did mm-hmm. at that age. We had home video and cable and rep cinema, and that was 10 times as many movies we had access to at that time as our parents who, when they were younger, only had TV and mm-hmm. movie theater. So there's no possible way that a 22-year-old will have seen anything that's playing in rep cinema because there's just way too many movies to do that with and something like letterboxd specifically creates a a social media fomo layer to needing to be conversant in a wide swath of things and actually you know what i will put that as as like anyone from 20 to 60 in is using who are letterboxd users have created a fomo for themselves to push themselves to see more movies now whether that is healthy for the individual i don't know it's incredible for our business (laughs) and i can't complain about it but it is a reality why more people are going out to rep cinema. And yeah, like, you know, when you go out, you have a choice between bars and restaurants and nightclubs and rep cinemas and other things, theater, life theater, whatever. And tons of people fell in love with movies all over again, or for the first time during the lockdown era, when they had a year and a half to really focus on movies that they could get into. So I don't know what at, at my series, which is at Alamo uh, DTLA every Wednesday. I always ask because I always like getting this little 
thrill of how many people are seeing this for the first time, not just in a theater, but for the first time. And nearly everyone raises their hand, no matter what movie it is, no matter how old they are. There was one movie that I showed uh, a couple of weeks ago where both myself and not a person in the room had seen it before. <laughs> uh, it was Lucio Fulci's The Psychic. Oh, that and that's an incredible movie. It's an incredible movie. Like I, I've seen the psych. I've never seen it in a theater. So, and that's the new Severn restoration, right? Correct, correct. Now, as a programmer, you're not really supposed to show stuff you've never seen before yeah. because, as a modern programmer, movies that we love, exploitation, <laughs> horror, vintage, uh, tend to have really explosive things in them emotionally, where you have to prepare an audience ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Uh, you want to, as a programmer, I'm just saying this for anyone who wants to, yeah. like casually, you need to pre-screen anything you will be showing. Because I, I hope that conversations like this inspire people to do programming where they are. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of the bigger picture. And since you talked about introducing and like that kind of stuff, let's talk about inter you know intro styles. Because I've run into the thing now that like there's a lot of things I show, and I'm talking about staples where people were seeing it for the first time. Like you know, oh, yeah. like I, last year, I always bring up Night of the Living Dead because like almost the whole entire audience hadn't seen Night of the Living Dead, and I sat in the back and I watched the audience kind of get into it and yeah. like get invested in Ben. And I'm just like, I wonder how they're gonna feel at the end of this movie when he gets shot. And like you could feel the air get sucked out of the room and them being devastated by like that dark ending. And yeah, yeah. I, I kind of I love sitting in the back and it's like I'm watching the movie, but I'm watching the audience kind of get into the first time. And yes. like yes, that's what you in order to be continually good at this over time, like from one era into the next, you really have to pay attention to audience tastes and how they react. And if you give them something that they don't react to, and I don't mean like fist pumping or anything yeah. or something emotionally react to positively or negatively if there's not enough of those in the movie you probably shouldn't show the movie again because it's not gonna there won't be any repeat business on movie x if it's yeah. just sits there you know i mean I, I just did class in 1984 like this week as we're recording and like i watched the audience really get into it and like yeah there's the there's some how to put a nice, some problematic and triggering stuff that happens in that movie, like most 80s exploitation movies. But when it got to the final title card of it, for, and I don't want to say it for those who haven't seen it, but like because it's set up throughout the movie of like this is a thing that happens when that title, like the audience just busted out cheering and applauding. And like it's kind of great that I could get that out of class in 1984 or like just any kind of weird exploitation movie. Because like I guess we'll this kind of tradition transitions back to the intro style so like what i like to i i like to give context but i don't like to spoil especially exploitation movies i do want to warn people if there's going to be things in there there's not going to be that could be offensive or could mess with their sensibilities or like be triggering but i don't want to spoil it because i've of the mind that exploitation movies when they came out in the 70s were just as problematic and had as many issues back then as they do now and i don't want to disarm one of the things that the movie's designed to do by, you know, spelling everything out. But I'm also mindful that people need to be warned in some way. And I might just say, it's going to be gnarly. It's going to be rough. So if you feel uncomfortable, feel free, you know, you're, you know, feel free to leave or something like that, just because, you know, I don't want anyone to have a bad time, but also understand the movie might be designed for you to have a bad time. <laughs> As so many movies were back then. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah well i okay so i i personally believe that the new cult canon 
is a swath through the jungle of movies where you don't have to set it up that hard mm-hmm. to begin with. Yeah. And it's not saying that we need to dumpster. I'm just going to use Last House on the Left as an example of something yes. that is like designed to push people's buttons. You don't have to show it in order to celebrate it. Yeah. Necessarily. <laughs> you can talk about how other movies that you would show are influenced by it, but you don't necessarily have to show it. And if you do show it, what I like to do is just give an entire blanket statement that covers all of like human creativity. Yeah. And say what we are about to see, not just part of it, but all of it is from the 1970s. That's an inescapable fact of this movie that it is time stamped with values that are not ours today. So proceed accordingly. Yeah. And give them a kind of uh, like a bailiff kind of <laughs> uh, like just quick just quick note spoken towards the floor basically like all rise you know pay yeah. attention for this five seconds and people get the message and i think well and anyway anyway i think that the audio the alamo draft house los angeles audience is very self-selecting to begin with mm-hmm. and also the rooms are it's just a factor of this particular venue that the rooms are all 50 seats yeah so when you have a room of 200 plus people or 130 as you do at the Los Feliz three you don't have time to scan every single person's face. Yeah. 50 seater, you are looking at every single person's face when you get up there and you talk. So you have the chance to be a little bit more intimate with what you're saying and maybe a little bit more carefree with, you know, how you whimsically treat things that are going to show up in the movie that are fucking horrifying and not <laughs> <from> today. <laughs> but uh, I just tend to, to like, what maybe what a docent would say about a shocking painting from the 1600s. It's like, well, they believe this you know the spanish inquisition happened wasn't that wild like they did that then we don't do that now i mean the the easiest answer for the 70s is like cocaine was a lot more potent and a lot more cleaner back then and the the effect that it had on actors filmmakers and everyone involved in the film industry is right on the screen for you to witness right now i would i think you know all of us are big fans of certain 80s movies because of their cocaine quotient like i'm hugely guilty of that I really do think in the rear view that it's cocaine mixed with booze that gave us the 70s movies. No, I, I think you're right because they, they had to be on that high, but then they, they cut that high to get through some, like, there's a lot of, like, drama and stuff like that. And you can't be, like, flying high at that whole movie. You gotta, gotta bring it back. So maybe a little weed, a little bourbon just to kind of even yeah. it out. I, I, I'm talking about hardcore drinking culture. Like, if you yeah. uh, just casually in a 60s movie, when you see characters at someone's house and they're starting to mix drinks and you watch the size of the pour of the drink, <laughs> go back and watch the bad <laughs> feed from the late 50s because there is a scene in there where someone's like, can I fix you a whiskey or something? And, and, and the lady goes, yeah. And then he pours what is like a small Coke at a theater-sized drink so everyone was just used to getting mad men style plastered and yeah. then step came along and then coke is dropped on top of the booze that gives us like <laughs> feel bad um that gives us t- a chainsaw for sure yeah like, heat plus booze plus coke equals leatherface as the that is probably the best way I've ever heard the seventies described. And like you know, I, as a person that loves Giallo cinema and like everything's drenched in J and B whiskey or Scotch whiskey, it's like in especially if you watch like you know Carol Baker and Orgasmo and the amount of J and B she drinks in that movie is just like is that humanly possible? But if you actually go and watch a lot of movies from that era, everyone's drinking like that. I think mm-hmm. it's just, I think the only difference between 
that movie and other movies is because she's like, oh, I need a drink when she's already had like a full like pint glass of like scotch at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People's tolerances were way higher. You would we would be shocked at the amount our grandparents drank. Yeah, I think it's just that again, it's a different world and a different environment. And plus, yeah, it's <laughs> the 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 world and cinema and things change. So when you're when you put your programming hat on versus your um distributor hat, what what do you look for into like what movies you pick and end up screening, especially on the Wednesdays of the Draft House? Mm. Well, um, uh, a lot of the titles, the the original mandate a year ago, because um, uh, my my hero of this situation jake isgar from alamo draft house asked me in like april last year uh, do you want to think about doing a series at alamo and i hadn't thought about rep cinema like me myself programming yeah. it at all since before the lockdown because i just assumed it was never going to happen again i just <laughs> you know i had a very just like hands-off view of it until it sort of circled around back to me and then Jake said, well, you want to just do a, uh, an, uh, just a series of all this stuff you have in your Agfa catalog every week? And, and I said, yeah, selfishly, because I wanted to get more uh, Agfa titles playing in L.A. But also, uh, it was my chance to do the thing that I used to do that I hadn't really done since uh, Cine Family time, which is where I get time slots and I have to fill time slots with something. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like, I'm going to drop in here and do a single event or something like that. So. I just went nuts on my own catalog and then very slowly started to work in one thing a month from like Universal or Park Circus or Warner Brothers, whatever. And then sometimes I'll have a whole month where I I want to theme it. I don't theme things very often. I don't think themes help me personally get behind and promote stuff. But I know that themes work for a lot of people and that's yeah. really important. But uh, a theme month I had recently was all 2000s sci-fi horror. Um, so we did Doom, Splice, and Daybreakers. I wanted to throw Stealth into the mix, but I ran out of a fourth time slot. We only had three that month. So that that's all stuff outside my catalog. But I do love the movies in, in my catalog. So it's it's a nice thing to have Reanimator in, in, in the pocket if I really needed it. Um, but it's a, it's a mixture of horror and cult. I'm starting to listen to what other people are interested in in terms of like what would get an audience of 50 people to come like i haven't booked skinnamarink yet but i have it on the docket for a few months for now there was no way i was ever gonna watch that i don't think unless <laughs> enough people around me said that i should check it out so i i wasn't a fan of that one but you know i i i might be one of the lone dissenters on that one but we'll, we'll save that discussion for another day. <laughs> exactly. I, I do want to mention, because I think we both have screened it this year, is we both showed Tightrope at some point. So I'm, 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 <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm kind of curious about how your Tightrope screening, because I want to compare notes. And plus, like, I, I was at the Music Box in Chicago when um, our friend Will Morris put it in for um, uh-huh. January Giallo. So uh-huh. I, I, I do want to briefly talk about the, the Tightrope renaissance that we've been spearheading here. Well, I'm I'm stoked to talk about Clint uh, Clint's movies, let's say, because I I find him endlessly fascinating. Part of film programming is knowing when to, especially if you're there just to do a series and you're not on staff of the venue necessarily. Jim, you've done it's been both sides for you. Yeah. So I tend to let the house do 
things that are convenient for the house whenever possible because it just allows me to sort of keep doing what I'm doing. And one of those is tightrope because Jake had uh, Jake had booked it at uh, Alamo, San Francisco and Brooklyn, I think, and he wanted to get a little print circuit going. And I think it was the same circuit as when it hit. Uh, it must have been the same circuit as when it hit the music box. Yeah, because uh, Music Box was January. I ended up doing February. That Warner Brothers has more than one print of it, which is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so t- the short answer was Tightrope was not my pick, but I knew that it was a pick that worked within my framework. So I was like, why not? You know, and especially especially if the house is offering 35 in a situation where I can't always book 35 because of the specific, again, the specific room situations at Alamo. So uh, I was like, fuck yes, let's show clint's version of cruising absolutely and i was not there for the show because i host about two-thirds of my shows it's whenever i can get down there but sometimes you know with uh with two jobs and like a life going on it's like hard to be there all every time when i did it so the the way will sold tightrope was you want to see oiled up clint eastwood ass oh yes well that's really the thing to grab people yeah, if you want to make them understand Pavlovian style, why they need to like, watch this movie. <laughs> I I, uh, yeah. I just know when it that scene happened in the actual screening when I did it, like people were like didn't because the way it's like it's very like sexualized, like you're like panning up a woman, and then you just once you get up and realize it's Clint Eastwood, it's just there was this amazing shock moment where I think everyone just froze, like wow, that is a yeah. that is a nice oiled up ass. Yeah, well, it's not the only time he's shown his ass in one of his movies. Um, when I saw Tightrope for the first time, which was during the lockdown and was the thing that kicked off my lockdown uh, viewing of all the other Clint-directed movies I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, when I saw, It was in my boyfriend's living room when I saw it, and I gasped. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I never thought I would see the shiny crack of one of cinema's iconic heroes. Um <laughs> And so the other movie that he shows his ass in is Space Cowboys, in which he shows James Garner's ass, Donald Sutherland's ass, and Tommy Lee Jones' ass all in the same shot. That that is that's pretty impressive. That's like that's a lot of Oscar caliber ass right there. Oh yeah, the movie is fun. I don't know if it, most people like us at the time when we were practically children, the idea of Clint Eastwood's Armageddon, like it's the same plot as Armageddon except. It's it's fucking old people instead yeah. of like Bruce Willis and Bruce Steve Buscemi. There's like they're going through the whole NASA physical regimen, mm. and at one point there's a shot with all their asses lined up in the frame symmetrically as if Wes Anderson placed them there. <laughs> I haven't seen Space Cowboys since probably since I was a kid, and probably went went solo with my dad. Now I need to revisit it just for that. Oh, it's I, sick! Like the opening ten minutes is is set in sepia tone, and it's like when everybody is in like um the korean war era time but all the young actors are dubbed over by the elderly actors oh man bring elderly tommy lee jones's voice come out of like a 25 year old's mouth on screen it's it's weird it's very weird it's a gentle armageddon (laughs) what's not to like you know you know i love clint as a director he's probably the most like you know solid craftsman filmmaker that's ever in cinema the fact that like he'll come in under budget he'll do like no more than like two takes mm-hmm. and they're genuinely good i i know maybe probably the last decade or so it's been spotty but like i mean it, it's no. admirable 
Oh, are you going to say no? <laughs> well, I was going to say I was significantly impressed with uh, uh, Richard Jewell. Here's the thing that I wasn't expecting to like. All three of the lead performances are incredible. It's a it's a fun movie for a depressing ass subject. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. And there's something I don't know. Sam Rockwell, Kathy Bates, and then the guy playing Richard Jewell, whose name I'm forgetting. They are like an amazing on screen trio. It's like, uh, you know, people love the three amigos for no reason. It's like another one of those where it's like three people on screen together. All right. Now I need to see Richard Jewell. I was actually out of a lot of the later last decade Clint stuff. That was the one of the ones I was really interested in. Just because I, I, I don't know. It's just like, I just love that he just doesn't give a fuck. He's like, all right, we're going to be done by 4 p.m. every day. So I can go like play golf or have a glass of wine or whatever. <laughs> There's a, there's a run of Clint movies from late 90s to early aughts that I got particularly obsessed with during lockdown. And they are Absolute Power, 97, True Crime, 99, Space Cowboys, 2000, and Bloodwork, 2002. It's like a, a airport novel kind of movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I in a way, Clint does make the perfect airplane movie on top of it because it's just like it gets to the point there's no bullshit you don't have to cut anything out for like really it's just the economical power of clint eastwood as a director is like no one else can do yeah and he's famous for only doing a single taste like he shoots the rehearsal and then he'll go like okay we'll change this and this and then they'll do a take and then that's it it's kind of like if you're a fan of post-punk it's kind of like marky smith in the fall <laughs> uh or Altman is just like we got it moving on no need no need to belabor <laughs> and, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you heard the Scatman Crothers story about working with Clint Eastwood after working with Stanley Kubrick right oh no was he in Honky Tonk I forget what? I I can't I can't remember which movie Scatman was in I should know it but like so Scatman did The Shining and obviously got hit with that axe like 60 80 times whatever Kubrick did I know everyone always wants to talk about like, you know, Shelley Duvall being, and how she was treated on the movie. It's like, no, Scatman had to do that fucking scene where he died like 80 times to the point he was crying and wanted to stop. So he does a Clint Eastwood movie. They do a take. Clint's like, all right, cut, print. We're moving on. And Scatman starts crying. He's like, oh, thank you. I, that's it. He's like, yeah, you're good. We're done. Why do another take? Yeah, the only time he'll do a second take is if someone bumps the camera or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it, just so economic. It's amazing. I, I like how we just derailed talking about Clint, the director, but that is important because that's, you know, that's why the, we like him. The reason yeah. I'm so into this run of four movies that I listed is because it's very obvious that what you're watching is the first take of everything, even more so than your cookie cutter TV. It's fascinating. There's a shot in blood work where it's so obvious it's on the Burbank Warner brothers backlot. They made no <laughs> effort to make it look like anything but a backlot. And it's it's the shot is this like 20 second shot and it's all in one take to like move the camera around a little bit. And it's just this like lazy half master. And he comes over to this crime scene and he's like, Ugh. and then he walks away. And then that's the scene. I'm like, wow, that didn't build the story or the character. It's just like we needed to have this A to B to C and. I respect him for doing the equivalent of like romance novels where it's turned out in three days. I guess it's good to talk about Clint Eastwood because like 
as on the film programming side, do you find there are some things that are harder sells to like, you know, screen theatrically as opposed to maybe like 20 years ago? Like, obviously horror is never going to go out of style, but I do think like certain filmmakers and certain like subgenres kind of come it's ebb and flow in how they do. And like, have you noticed that with just the Agva catalog? I mean, obviously you have some action stuff and you have like, you know, you, I mean, you have a whole shitload of things in there. Do you know, do you notice at one point, like a genre will get hot for a little bit and then kind of die down and then maybe something else comes up or it's, or is it just yeah, more well, just, well, it's definitely cyclical and also in waves and something that was in vogue might not come back again. Like, I, I don't think that the seventies Corman stuff has much of a life left outside of institutional film programming, like at a, a museum or university or something like that i just don't see the box office receipts rolling in for star crash anymore sadly but you know things like giallos which i was not expecting to to have such an interest in from the the programming public uh thanks to you and other folks who are into the genre that has definitely been foregrounded a lot i think i think certainly agfa's particular access to these movies that we grant to the venues is definitely helping that oh definitely yeah i mean we can talk a little bit about january giallo and just like because agfa made that easier because like all those movies like even if there were prints it became it was a mess to figure out who had what or whatever and plus mm -hmm. like what one of the things that was instrumental in being be able to like kind of spread out to other venues was working with you and like you know finding other venues who would be interested in like you know kind of making packages and stuff yeah, which we're approaching our, our window of time again for next year by the way <laughs> oh i know so we'll we'll have another call <laughs> we'll have another yeah, talk yeah. about that because uh i know there's a few other venues that want to jump on board well i have a uh something that i wanted to talk about because it was a rep screening that i hosted yesterday and it's been okay. on my mind and it's something that you also brought up but also um feel free to cut this bit if you don't want to give away the ghost no that's uh, fine is a, probably you should sprinkle a couple of spaghetti westerns in the mix of giallos and consider it one genre sort of because yesterday we showed uh matalo or is mm -hmm. it pronounced matalo i think alex pronounced it matalo so we'll go with that from 1970 it was i personally thought it was so good that it i could officially say that it rocked me wow and it's a film with almost no dialogue at all they get away with like intense camera moves, which communicate all the emotional components of the scene a lot of the time. Fascinating. Loved it. And if you had two years ago told me, Brett, you're one of your favorite rep finds of the year is a spaghetti Western. I would have gone, you're lying. But because <laughs> <laughs> I, I typically hate, no, I hate's a strong word. I don't watch Westerns because of their ASMR components. I think that the clomping hooves and the gunshots and the saloon noises and all that shit, it just gets on my nerves and I can't deal with it. But this one was perfect for me. And I think that people understand maybe the spaghetti Western thing through the Giallo lens a little better because they are both incredibly nihilistic and equally as violent and often as interesting and funny if you get the right ones in combination, I think. Yeah, and you know, I've been kind of toying with doing spaghetti Westerns at some point on their own because I... I you know, outside of the Leone stuff, which is like traditionally what people come out for, occasionally you have people like if there's a Django screening, it will occasionally get that or like, you know, some of the other Sergio Kabucci stuff. But like, I, 
because the thing that people forget is a lot of the people that made giallo films also made spaghetti westerns and then went on to make euro crimes because that's how italy worked they would you know they would hop on their genre trend for like maybe like four to six years and then eventually when the parody came out where it was like a comedy that killed the genre and they went on to the next which i always thought was interesting it was like you know, Argento is kind of the rare exception because, like, outside of maybe his historical comedy, he pretty much stayed in one lane the whole time. But, like, everyone yeah. from Roberto Lenzi, Sergio Martino. Fulci. Were, yeah, Fulci. Yeah. People forget Fulci made sex comedies. He made westerns. He made Eurocrime. And I, always, I also love it when they would make one of those films, like, way past the, the prime of it. Like, you know, Fulci did Contraband in, like, 1980. And it's like him doing his gore aesthetic on a Eurocrime movie. So when people get shot, they really get fucking shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, whether whether this is a prediction that will come true or whether it's total smoke I'm blowing, maybe these three, like, big categories, you know, Italian crime, spaghetti westerns, giallo, it doesn't need to all be pushed into one umbrella that is then sold as the umbrella as an exciting thing you can see at a rep cinema is italian wildness not necessarily just the horror yeah i mean i because i i i'm gonna say this as a fan of a lot of these movies is that i kind of wish more people would like you know take a dive on the euro crime or the you know spaghetti western because they're just as insane and fucked up as the giallo films it's just either you're wearing a fucking cowboy hat or you are ripping off dirty harry or the french connection I feel really dumb because I, in the Actors Catalog, I have something like 20 or 25 Italian crime movies. Or maybe I'm exaggerating, but a number that's bigger than eight. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I don't know anything about any of them. And the same thing with Spaghetti Westerns. I just get to pick them off one a year and get excited about it and then don't watch anymore. Well, I, it, something to kind of talk about on both sides of the lane that you're on is like, as you get like different things into the catalog that aren't really, you know, the horror element, it's like, do you figure do you work on ways to try to sell things to theaters like hey you should give this a try like you know it might not be like the hot button thing now but you could make it the hot button thing by just taking a chance and screening it yeah i think i it is possible to put your thumb on the scale for things like that if you have all the assets that give the theater an easier time to sell it like i need to oh for a good example is a movie that we had it was the biggest hit of ours in 2022 and then we had to and then it hit a right snag but we're getting it back soon is thrilling bloody sword which is a taiwanese wuxia kung fu thing which is 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 wilder than your typical wizard battle type of movie mm-hmm. it's got enough elements that equal maybe not a miami connection but something that can talk to people on that level uh it's got this insane ripoff of money 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 <laughs> like there's this funk uh drop that comes in once every 10 minutes every five minutes and it's the same cue and it's a ripoff of an uh, like an american song and it's hilarious every time uh it's it's part snow white and the seven dwarves part wizard battle part like dumbbell comedy it's just it's, it's an insane movie so i put my thumb on the scale for that because i watched it and went wow this is nuts i think i i can see it's got enough audience moments real by real to to really hit with a crowd who's not expecting it and i booked it like 30 places and then i had to withdraw it and it's coming back soon but i know it's like you got to give them the killer trailer or Durfan is another example mm-hmm. that's a movie that went after 
as a single title rather than a library because I knew I could contact the owner, the rights holder, and I was and I made a case and we got the movie. So I had to then to prove to him that we are making good on our promise to try to get it at play. I cut a trailer and I say to the venues, here's this movie, here's the trailer, here's the screener. I really think you should consider Durfan at some point this year for your rep series because I because it's gonna hit. It's mm. gonna wipe away the young crowd who's never seen anything quite like that, which is like a little bit of a <laughs> is it a female empowerment movie? Maybe. <laughs> it, it's it's my it's one of my favorite, you know, you know, why rock stars shouldn't be shitty to their fan movies. It's a good yeah. cannibal movie. It's a so I, I at one point this year, before I had to like pivot and change my whole lineup, I wanted to show Dur fan around Valentine's Day. I think I might do it for this upcoming Valentine's Day. Oh, do it, do it! All the all <laughs> the under thirty people will really appreciate it. So the so I I did it at Alamo, and there's fifty people in the room, and rarely do people hang around the room after the movie's over because they want to get their parking validated and get out. Yeah. But people stuck around and talked about Dur fan way more than most of the things i show so i really feel it has the power to sock people it, it's a really good movie it has a really good 80s soundtrack it's very it's very well done it, i i was gonna say something it's like sneaky and how it kind of unfolds as it unfolds but like it's, it's just a really impressive film and like yeah i mean that's kind of the fun the other fun part of repertory cinema is like things you discover and getting people to discover it and like opening someone's world is something that they may or may not want to see but we both know sometimes that's hard where like you know you're in you're in a business where you have to sell tickets so like obviously you want to take a chance on something like hope people will come out for a screening but then at the same time you also have to be prepared to duck and cover like well guess it's friday 13th again for a week yeah as programmers we do have to balance the the tough sells with the hits in order to keep the thing at an even keel and not you know, make yourself cumbersome to the organization you're doing that thing for. Now, another thing you've kind of like, I've seen ACFA do, and like, I, if you're, depending on how much your involvement is, obviously you might not be answered, but like, you've also worked on like traveling series. You've done something with Joe Bob with his like drive-in thing with the, was it a oh, double yeah. feature of the brain and brain damage and things like that? Do you want to talk yeah, about yeah. how that stuff came about? Sure. I mean, out of the blue, I got a email from Joe Bob's agent or, or no, assistant, his assistant, Tracy. And she said, we've heard about you from somewhere, probably through talking with a venue that they were thinking about doing a show at and maybe the booker said to them, oh, Agfa has a bunch of horror movies. So they got in touch with me and I set up a meeting and it's one of the great perks of this job is I talked to Joe Bob for an hour on the phone with his team. And I made the pitch that they should go with us kind of exclusively to do whenever he hosts a rep show, they should try to do it exclusively from us because we'll make it easy and affordable for the venue to do it. Because I know that with him, giving him the bulk of the ticket sales rather than me taking a cut of the door is the way to keep the relationship cool and and keeps money flowing for everybody. Mm -hmm. So I just decided to not, because when you're, when you're a distributor and, you, and a venue wants to book a movie, a lot of the times you say a guarantee versus a percentage. I'm sure you've covered this on the show at some point, yeah. but it bears repeating that. Yeah, please repeat it because like, you know, obviously I don't expect 
you know, I know that people have listened to the podcast episode, but this is an important thing that I think bears repeating. So go ahead and explain the percentage so, versus the guarantee. So you want to make, you don't want to just take a straight cut of the door because you don't know how well the show is going to do some of the time. And you don't want to sometimes just take a straight cut of the door because what if they sell it out? So you can hedge your bet and give them terms that are a guarantee versus a percentage. Usually, like say, let's say an industry average is 250 versus 35%. That means that mm-hmm. If, if you don't hit $750 in box office, then you just pay the guaranteed minimum that we all agreed to, which is $250. And if they go over $750 in box office, then it tips over into 35%. You do the math and it, you understand yeah. how these numbers work. And, and sometimes I'm fucking wowed by like, oh my God, I didn't know the venue in Tacoma, um, the Blue Mouse, I got to give them a shout out. They get over 100 people to see things like graduation day. I'm like, that is what is needed in this economy is people getting into weird dumb shit that they probably never seen before because there's someone on the ground who can sell it the right way and all those things you know so i i knew that i didn't want to um do a versus and just charge a flat rate so that it's easier for uh the booking to just get solidified and the more bookings he gets solidified the more he's out on the road and the more he's out on the road the more he gets gigs and it's good for everybody all around so that's how that worked (laughs) yeah so I kind of want to talk about something else that kind of comes out of that. Now, obviously, Joe Bob's on a, like a bigger level than, you know, most film programmers. But you and I have had many discussions about the next evolution of film programmers as the traveling film programmer who, you know, works with other venues and like might have a home base, but kind of travels around. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you want to... um, I, I, to, to me, that was in the modern age. That is um, Eddie Mueller from Noir City mm-hmm. figured out how to make that happen. And it's also with like a fashion component. So, yeah, I guess he was like an early inf- he was like a proto influencer. And uh, yeah, there's all kinds of folks, including yourself, who now uh, go around the country and bring their sensibility and uh, promotion to other venues. And I, I kind of think it's a good thing. I, I you know, it's like. You know, I, I'm hoping I've had Kay Lynch from Salem Horror Fest come post something. I'm hoping to have Mark Anastasio from the Coolidge. He should be here in September for the Boston series he program. But I, I like the idea of like programmers kind of going around, moving around, because then you get it's kind of it kind of allows towns to see how programming is elsewhere. And also just like, you know, it's also building a community because like there's not a lot of that might seem like there's a lot of movie theaters and stuff, but there's not a lot of film programmers or genre film programmers and stuff. I I guess maybe it's kind of hard because we definitely have that pandemic pocket in there too, but have you noticed the growth in film programmers over the last few years? Oh yeah. Uh, 10 years ago, no one knew what it was to be a programmer because it isn't such a not public facing job. And recently, you know, I, I think there's a lot of institutions in the country that have made film programming seem exciting as programmers try to revitalize the scene let's take new york for example the what happened in like 2015 16 17 18 with the metrograph and the quad specifically in manhattan that was a really interesting game of brinksmanship which i thought resulted in this golden age of rep <laughs> <laughs> out there nationwide and certainly in austin alamo draft house oh, did it ton of things in la there was cine family um and yeah it's places like the beacon in seattle more recently where tommy swenson who used to work in austin for alamo draft house moved back to his hometown started a new place has a, an interesting scene going at his place uh nelly killian who used to be at bam in uh new york went back to her her home in san francisco where she grew up and now she's about to start a new venue there just like the beacon it's a, it's a combination of people going 
itinerant style around the country and micro cinemas popping up in places where you don't expect them to and giving a real interesting movie voice to a city where it's needed sometimes it's 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 a wild thing and then people migrating from the the festival world over to the sort of 24 7 programming stuff and then vice versa it's a wild time i i love it I think uh, all of our colleagues at all these places and the people who go around and do it too, I think it's a really interesting bunch of people. It's who I like to hang out with. Now, kind of talking about that, we talked about a little bit about what you do at the Draft House, but I want to, you know, you know, talk about Museum of Home Video. Do you want to talk about how that came about? Oh, sure. Museum of Home Video is a thing that I do every um, Tuesday night. It's a live stream, which started on Twitch in the pandemic era and now is... Um, on our own URL, museumofhomevideo.com. And it is a weekly found footage variety show where the thesis is the history of showbiz. Anything that is kind of like entertainment-y, like uh, old talk show clips or game shows, commercials, cutdowns of movies where it's boring for two hours, but it's really exciting for 15 minutes, uh, stuff like that. I guess the closest comparison is everything is terrible, which uh, they definitely helped inform what I do now. It started in July of 2020. Originally, it was to be a live show here in LA every every Saturday at 4 p.m. I haven't gotten to do that. But uh, we, we pivoted during the lockdown and I do it every week. And now it's an entire channel. Basically, I was hugely inspired by Weird Al and UHF. So I decided to do that as best I could and sort of marry it with a college radio template. So uh, our channel has a bunch of shows that broadcast on a linear schedule like television used to be. And uh, it's it's my great joy. It's also my video therapy because I get to work out all the weird ghosts from my childhood in uh, video form. That's a actually really interesting, working out the ghost of your childhood through video because like I definitely like have things that have been stuck with me that have informed where I'm at and what I do now. So it's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't be doing a, a movie about... I, you wouldn't be doing a series about sleazy movies if you didn't grow up watching a bunch of sleazy movies. Exactly. It, you, the things you watch when you're young really do inform me. I actually started doing a YouTube series where I kind of talk about, like, I pick individual movies that I remember if I have a good story around how I saw them and how, like, it either sure. fucked me up or where it took me to or if it, like, influenced me when I was in bands and stuff like that. Because, like, I don't know, I, the one thing... The thing is, I think film programmers all love movies and they all have a different relationship of how they got into it and that kind of stuff. And I feel like there's a lot of like I, I was I was talking to Nick, who I did the podcast, but there's a lot of movie meme things where I feel like there's people that will meme a movie, but like have no context or love for the actual movie or cinema in general. It's all like transactional, like, you know, Instagram likes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to see people get back to like it's it's more than an image you find on pinterest it's a it's a work of art regardless if it's fucking things or if it's like brewster mcleod or nashville or like <laughs> lawrence arabia or i i had to throw things because you know things can be a work of art the, the song the tailspin song is one of the greatest songs in a movie ever and will get stuck in your head and melt your mind and ruin you for the rest of your life Right. You've never seen a movie till you've seen a Barry Gillis movie. <laughs> <laughs> so now, we talked about a lot what you're doing now, but I do want to ask you, how did you stumble into the weird world of film programming? 
Cause like, it's not a traditional thing that most people like, maybe now there's people that are like, I want to be a film program and they try to figure out how to do that. But like decade or so ago, or, you know, even before that, it wasn't something that you just said, this is what I'm gonna do. It's something you casually just kind of fell into or ended up in. Mm-hmm. It's something I <clears throat> fell into. I did not plan to do it. You know, everyone, they're, when they're young, everyone thinks that they're going to be a filmmaker and that's for some people and not for others. For me, it was unimportant because I realized what a political uh, competition it was to get a movie made. And I thought, I don't want to do that. I'll just work in a video store. So I worked, I was a manager at uh, Cinephile Video throughout my whole 20s, throughout all the 2000s. And then um, the co-owner of the video store, this is in Los Angeles, the co-owner of Cinephile, Hadrian, went off to start Cinefamily at the Silent Movie Theater, a place that I had gone to see silent movies at in high school in the 90s. And then it didn't really occur to me that that was a career because the two most important rep houses to me growing up in LA were the New Bev and the Silent Movie Theater. And in both instances, it was a single middle-aged to elderly person who um, ran the operation. The operation was just one person. With the New Bev, it was uh, the late Sherman Torgan. And you would go to the show and you'd be selling the ticket a lot of the time. And he's the one who you understand is like, oh, this is his place. So it wasn't as if film programming was a career. I didn't understand that at LACMA or American Cinematheque, there were people whose job it was to come in professionally just to do that. And I stumbled into it through Cinefamily. And I, Hadrian had, he knew how hard of a worker I was. So I got tapped to be a programmer and then director of programming, which was really a position for me at that place that was more like an air traffic controller. And you learn to think of movies and the aesthetic choice of choosing them more as a functional decision than an aesthetic decision. And I don't know, the lots of things that I learned at Cinephile and Cinefamily that I do still use to this day, but I sort of like invert the script. (laughs) And uh, now that I'm in distribution, I try to think of what is, I try to empathically, empathetically figure out what the venue person is going through and how much they're paying for movies and try to make it a pleasant experience for them. Kind of going back to being with your at for Aqua, it's like, you know, it's... I'm not trying if this is spilling the secret sauce a little bit, but like obviously yeah. there, there there's a fee that comes with the easier f- percentage or flat, but you do have a little bit of a sliding scale depending on like what the venue size is, who it mm-hmm. is, if they're, you know, even if they're just doing a Blu-ray screening and stuff like that. Can you talk about just like, you know, giving access to like theaters or like micro cinemas or just again, someone doing a one-off screening on like a weird offsite, like a bar or like a I don't know, like like a club or something like that. I feel that as a distributor, you absolutely have to have a different pricing structure for micro cinemas that have 30-ish seats in their single room than you do a a bustling uh, art house in a metropolis, let's say. Um, You can't charge, you know, the same rate because um, the micro cinema will never book anything with you again if you charge the same rate. You know, yeah. if you charge a rate that's more than 100% of what the entire door take would be if they sold out, they're only going to book with you if you have something in your catalog that they absolutely devastatingly have to have. We have so many movies that I can't block access like that. It would be counterintuitive, I feel. 
And um, I just have to price things lower for a passive room that has 30 seats because I want them to keep booking for me. It's both mission driven because we're a nonprofit. I don't know if we mentioned that. No, we didn't. So, but yeah, we, I guess you should say the ACFA is a nonprofit. So like basically the way it's structured, it's like, you know, everything that goes in goes back into the organization, which is like acquiring new movies. Like obviously ACFA also has their own scanner and they scan mm -hmm. stuff. And there's also the film archive still, which is still a component. Yeah, and then we we do lend out thirty five under strict uh, conditions. You know, there's yeah. only so many ways that meet our meet archival conditions in the first place. But um, what were we talking about? <laughs> oh no, I guess we were talking about price structure because like oh, that's another structure. yeah. Because yeah. like when like I meet someone that wants to get into film programming and they're looking what the stuff, I always tell them go to Agfa first because one, I know you have a a huge ca catalog of bangers and like you know it's like. It's easier, you know, if you have reanimator as an option, you don't have to go try to do a studio thing where you're going to get charged an arm and leg. Maybe not yeah. arm and leg, but, you know. 250 by, by indifferent distributor who doesn't doesn't think to ask how many seats there are. Or yeah. So it's like, I, I think like when one of the most beneficial places for someone that wants to get into film programming, specifically genre film programming, is like go to ACFA and start from there because then you get a a whole library of stuff you you know you do dcps i know you send drives but you also can do digital downloads too correct yeah so what i say to anyone who wants advice is find the brewery or the bar in your town that has an existing av system because maybe they already show movies or maybe they do a trivia night or karaoke or whatever so go to the bar and say if you'll cover the cost of licensing the movie, I will guarantee and do and this is this is very important. Do a free admission show. If you cover the cost of licensing the bar, I will guarantee to bring twenty or thirty people in to to buy at least one drink in your bar as they have free admission to come in and see the movie in your bar. To me, that is the most absolutely mutually beneficial relationship to get yourself off the ground as possible. So if you don't do that then you're just making it harder on yourself whether it's like oh but i want to do it in the local library don't do it in the bar because <laughs> the bar will pay for the fucking license fee so you don't have to pay out of pocket and that way you can experiment with a wider range of movies and get a wider range of people and maybe have a wider range of co-promoters because that's also important you want to get your local if there's a college radio station in your town get a fucking dj from there to come spin so they'll they'll talk about it on their show you know things like that that will help draw more people than just you know to the thing and i have to i'm compelled to make these movies affordable for people who want to do that because this is how the next generation like you said of rep cinema bookers happens and without it it's all just like this monk-like hidden behavior behind closed doors and i don't like that because this is not rocket science it's a mixture of uh creativity and entrepreneurial stuff and how social you are because if you're a social person you'll be able to get more people to come to your shit than a non-social person i was going to ask you where do you see the future rep cinema heading like do you see like more micro cinemas do you see like more alternative venues do you see like established theaters just keep continuing growing the audience and like new people coming in because one thing I, I do want to mention is like you know streaming wise if you go to shutter and places like that 
lot of the Agfoot catalog because of different distribution deals like you know Severin Vinegar Syndrome Arrow have their own streaming services or have licensed this stuff so this stuff is available to watch if you have a shutter subscription but there there's definitely a side where people will go out and see stuff like is it that people are tired of streaming curation and just or there is I think both will exist but like I just kind of want to get your perspective on like where you think repertory is going to head in the long haul uh yes to all those points you mentioned I guess we could go through them one by one um certainly with the death of video stores to choosing what to watch has become an agonizing endless process whereas if you went to the video store you you had to choose or you wouldn't come home with a movie you could Mm -hmm. spend all night there if you wanted to but you kind of wanted to see the a movie so you better pick at some point so streaming allows me to fucking waste time that I want back of just scrolling and rep cinema is the only way to just pick a movie with someone else having done the picking for you and you don't have to think about it so I think that's a really interesting novelty that will not wear off as time goes on because video stores are not en masse coming back there are ones in pockets of the country but it's not like they're everywhere and I just think that there's more and more people who post lockdown still savor the idea of going out and doing something unplanned like i saw we talked about barbie earlier i saw it on opening weekend unplanned because a friend said i want to go you want to come so it's just a vehicle for unplanned spontaneous fun i think access to more and more and more movies through restorations is just creating more and more rep cinema future rep cinema bookers and that's very exciting to me it's why part of my interpretation of agfa's mission is to aid all the labels doing restorations and to support them by having these screenings because it, what they do is so important access wise for young film fans or any film fan. Um, and I think that uh, a new uh, savvy crop of people at venues across the world are getting better at networking and finding, digging, doing the Columbo work. And it's it's just a, it's a very exciting, rich tapestry of people. And I personally believe in this strata of people and their ability to fucking kill it because I'm seeing everybody have, be successful everywhere. That is really perfect. Uh, kind of harkening back to your programming hat of this thing uh, on the programming side of the things. Uh, you, is there any particular screenings that you put together and hosted over the years that, you know, always kind of stayed with you really memorable, whether it be a guest or because it was a rare print or anything like that? Is there, do you have any of those that kind of like you hold on to? A lot of them are from CineFamily because um, there was, a, you know, it was a stretch of years yeah. where if if we got a hold of uh, some famous filmmaker or actor or whomever's uh, like publicist's email, mm-hmm. there's a good chance that they might show up because it was LA and, you know, we had a certain juice to the place, like yeah. notoriety wise, I guess. So I got to do a whole three hour Q&A with Dr. Domeno. <laughs> that was really fun uh you know he was a childhood hero that wasn't a prick so that was nice another childhood hero who was also very nice and i just bow down to his bobcat goldwaith i got to do a couple q a's with him vernon chapman the creator of uh, a co-creator of wonder shows and xavier renegade angel the heart she holler i did a couple with him he was fantastic i adore him uh, recently in Alamo, uh, it was a it was a pick that I wasn't expecting to be so resonant with me. But uh, Jake Fogelnest, another podcaster and and writer and performer, 
he uh he his favorite movie is Times Square. So we did Times Square because Universal has a new restoration, which looked fantastic. Hats off to I'm gonna name name drop Jason Jakowski from Universal, who does a bang up job of their repertory operations. Yeah. It was just a, it was just it was nice to give a really resonant screening to to Jake because he came out to to participate and also the movie hit way harder than I thought it would because I, did, I realized I hadn't actually watched it in full ever. And it's almost like an Antonioni movie. It's very stark and deep and really fucked up. And I appreciated it. And it has the punk stuff in it too. Yeah. Um, so that was really resonant. Uh, we did a screening of the gong show movie and had Artie Johnson show up. <laughs> Artie Johnson and Rip Taylor. That was back in the cinema family. That was like 2010. Uh, it was real wild. I got to grew to hate Rip Taylor. I hate to be hateful of a dead person, but he was the most assholeish personality I ever dealt with ever from a celebrity <laughs> at Cine Family ever. That was wild. I got to meet Robert Downey Sr. when we did a tribute to him in 2014. A couple of us got to go out to breakfast with him. That was fucking aces. I still remember him like perfectly beautifully sitting in the corner of this restaurant to this day. I don't know. Uh there's there's too many to, to go through. That's that's kind of the one of the benefits of living in LA is you do get to see a lot of people come you know see shit what are what are some of yours recently like post like the last 12 months what are some of yours you know i gotta think like one of the coolest things i got to do recently was back in november did a whole string of movies with jonathan kaplan with him there so we so we did truck turner we did student teachers and then we ended with over the edge and tim hunter came out and uh, one of the actors showed up too and that was really terrific because i've never done q a's with i've done q a's with people multiple times but not i've never done like a series where it's like every week i'm coming back and i'm talking to him about a different movie and like trying to keep things fresh and like it it was one of the most rewarding things because like i guess jonathan kaplan didn't really do these too often so it was like just kind of really cool that he actually came out and like was yeah. willing he was a little embarrassed by student teachers but you know uh, 70s roger corman sexploitation i get it but when i saw over the edge 20 years ago at the egyptian um tim hunter was there and matt dillon was there but not jonathan kaplan so yeah that is quite rare there was that um also last year i, I did the changeling with peter medic and um, joel b michaels the producer and like there was just something really touching and like sincere about Peter Medic talking about that movie in a way that like I wasn't prepared for because like he was a little emotional about just like the magic of cinema. And it's like, you know, I love The Changeling. It's a great little ghost story with George C. Scott and all, but like it just hit this emotional high that like I wasn't really expecting. Mm-hmm. And just kind of get in it, like I kind of love those moments. I'm trying to think of what I was like. I did Beastmaster, Don Coscarelli, and Paul Pepperman and the composer. And like it kind of felt like Don was getting his like felt like he was felt vindicated because it finally had that nice 4K restoration, which we had. to. That was one we had to jump through hoops. We had to get a hold of the was it a billionaire on a yacht that owns Beastmaster, Evil Speak and Unfade of Black. And he lives in Istanbul or something. Yeah, we. Like Don, Don, Don gave us one email and he didn't answer. He's like, we'll try this other email. And then we're like, hey, can we clear lights? Like, ah, I don't care. But apparently that if anyone else ever tried it, like that guy shuts them down and like threatens lawsuits like like crazy. So it was it was kind of cool to do Beastmaster and like, you know, Don getting to see the restoration on a big screen. Uh, one that I just remembered is maybe one of the most. It certainly typifies my time at CineFamily, and it was early on, so I wasn't expecting to roll into something this insane. John Avildsen Q&A for Neighbors. 
Really? Wow. Yeah. So we were doing um, in like a Thursday night slot. This is back in the early days of Cine Family when it was Wednesday nights or this and Thursday nights or this and Friday nights or this. And it kind of like every Wednesday in the month was something and it stuck with that, whatever theme was. So wh whatever month it was, it was double bills by uh, famous auteurs where people hadn't seen the movies enough. So it was a double feature of John Abelson's mid seventies, Burt Reynolds, he haw type comedy that he did right before Rocky. I can't remember what it is, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And then neighbors is the second on the double bill. So he showed up almost at the end of the Burt Reynolds. Movie. And the thing that, that is the same between both of these two John Avelson films is he absolutely was at odds with the star the entire time. <laughs> so he came in and watched the last third of the Burt Reynolds movie. And while the credits were rolling, I remember him taking out his phone and like filming the screen of the end credits rolling of this Burt Reynolds movie that he made. And then he, I, we get up there and I do a 15 minute Q and a with him introing neighbors. And it's a, if you haven't seen it, maybe keep it that way. It's, it's a deeply unfunny early 80s comedy from an era where all comedies were kind of deeply unfunny at the time because of cocaine yeah. specifically. <laughs> uh, so it's John Avelson directing Belushi and Aykroyd and both of them are completely out of control and there was no way that he could like keep it together to make it like a cohesive movie. So it was a very brutally honest Q&A about Belushi and his time in the early 80s and and all that. So that one really sticks out in my mind. It's like, I can't believe I got to do that. Now on the flip side and is yeah. we've both hosted screenings, but you know, things go wrong. Prince break, guest no show, technical problems. Like oh, I technical problems. Don't get me started. Oh my God. I was going to ask you, like, is there any screenings that you remember that just almost made you like, why the fuck am I doing this? And I should just get a different job. Well, there, there, there's. A, I'll describe a problem, and it's like a the same kind of problem, and it's like a good example and a bad example. So, as is the problem with a lot of thirty-five reel-to-reel changeover gear in everywhere over the decades, film prints they'll shrink by like a millimeter, mm -hmm. and if there is an optical soundtrack, the optical soundtrack won't fully be aligned with the reader anymore which gives you the dreaded yeah the, the lawnmower sound yeah the 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 cyclical rotating lawnmower sound that's at an interval of every two seconds and that makes it fully impossible for you to ignore it so for so long we were like down to one projector at cinefi uh, cinefamily where we'd have to take so instead of keeping the audience in darkness and doing a q a at the end of this near four hour ordeal or whatever the hell it was uh, screening this movie i decided that we would do the q a in between every real break so <laughs> we would do a q a for three minutes at a time across what, what was like nine reels or something eight reels and we would do a sequential q a Based upon the reel we just seen, that that's kind of making a that's kind of like turning lemons and lemonade there because that's actually kind of cool. Other yes. than like being one, <laughs> one of the hardest ways to watch a movie, but I think that's a good way to do it because then it's like, all right, talk about what you did for that, or like what went on with the editing process for like that grip of scenes or whatever. Yes, it's almost something psychotic like they would do at a festival on purpose. Yes thing so that was really fun and i uh, i encourage more people to be creative with their tech failures and how they deal with the audience and the audience expectations 
when dealing with them. <laughs> that, that audio shit is really the worst. And there's nothing that gives you a sinking feeling in your stomach more than when you're sitting in the crowd to watch the movie that you hosted and programmed. And then suddenly something terribly goes wrong with the projection and you have to sprint up the stairs like a madman in order mm-hmm. to get to the because maybe that you'll get you'll tell them what it is before they even notice it. Mm-hmm. When when I was more on the theater managing side, the amount of times I had to like make the mad dash up to the booth when like something was going off, like you know, a dowser closed on accident because there was something wrong. Like you know, it's the beauty and the danger of thirty five millimeter projection because there's no parts for any of these things left. It's basically scavenge to save them. So when shit goes bad, it gets scary. Yeah, yeah. The most intense uh, the show must go on thing that I've ever personally had to do was all throughout the month in 2012 at Cine Family when we did it. Andre Zulowski or Zulowski, I think it's how it's actually pronounced. Uh, a whole retrospective on him. And he was slated to appear and I was over the moon because I was like, I get to do a Q&A with Zulowski for On the Silver Globe. My life is complete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like holy shit and then at the last minute he canceled oh. and so it was just but we still still sold out every show of every movie including three screenings of on the silver globe it was really nice i cut some really good trailers for those it was it was a good triumph on all our parts but fuck we had to soft subtitle i think four of them oh no and we had it we had a really interesting pro- so for those who don't know when you get a film print or dcp or whatever the material is that has just in the native language with no subtitles or dubbing you have to provide your own subtitles mm-hmm. and you can a variety of ways because we had a vj on staff one of our programmers was also a professional vj for like music performers he uh had these dvd turntables that were made by pioneer in the booth and the soft subtitling would be accomplished through the 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 pioneer decks and a monitor so we would have the movie running as a reference on a little monitor in the booth on one deck and on the other deck was just a dvd that had a black screen with the subtitles on it and so some of these movies i had to download the srt subtitle files Mm -hmm. off of dodgy sources and then i get it in and i'm all set to burn the disc for the subtitles to be projected on screen when i realized oh god there's some formatting error and every line has punctuation that needs to be deleted or else it's unreadable <laughs> so i the show was almost an hour late to start because what i thought was going to take me an hour and a half took me four straight hours of being data from next generation going, oh god being philip glass with my fucking laptop keyboard and making this srt file readable so that we can then burn it so they can then project it and we had to do this for four different movies the last one was the most difficult it was his opera which had never been translated into english so what i had was from a torrent site i had a vhs bootleg copy that had it was in russian with hard-coded polish subs and i had an srt in what might have been english what might have been french or something and the timing of the subtitles did not match the timing of the subtitles oh, God. In, the, in the reference. So I had to spend 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., a full 12 hours nonstop, because then the show was the next day. And I had to translate the movie using Google Translate in like a, there's two competing languages which aren't English, and I have to figure out what I'm translating these lines into. <laughs> oh, my God. So that 60 people can see this show once. 
I mean, I, I've had to do self, <laughs> soft subbing for January Giallo for all the, the Italian prints, but usually because a lot of those have had decent releases, they have, they have subtitle tracks. Yeah, yeah. Although, now in 2023, I'm sure it's a tad easier. Tad, it is a tad easier, but goddamn. But like having, you know, worked on the D, DCP creation things and trying to line up subtitles and like, oh my fucking God. That, <laughs> oh, and the print, you know, might be missing three seconds yeah and then it throws everything know. off yeah and it throws your whole subtitle thing off. that's why we use the 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 dj decks because you could quickly rewind and yeah. fast forward using a hand gesture and uh it was I, an interesting i might situation. i might have to suggest that some other venues like when we did a lizard women's skin like the technical or italian print we did okay but there was definitely a segment that like i don't know if it was because it was dub titles or something there was a bunch of dialogue that didn't belong anywhere in the movie anymore. <laughs> so it's just oh, like... yeah. another one of the Zulaski movies, one of the subtitle files had a five minute gap in it out of nowhere. And there's dialogue that's just pouring out. So the poor manager on duty who was tasked with soft subbing the, the movie had to like, we had to stop the screening and then we had to like ghostly project the images, the image of the DVD reference subtitles so like the, we're projecting the movie on top of the movie and oh then my like god matting out everything but the subtitles and that doesn't work and the audience is revolting against the fucking theater and it was insane and it was like a hot summer night and it was a packed room and fuck oh i get yeah. freaked out just thinking about that still i guess kind of to move away from <laughs> disasters <laughs> but like to kind of end on a more positive note um do you is there any white whales that you're still looking for for screening? Like maybe acquiring for ACFA or something that you still want to screen and see in a theater? Is there like a movie that just like has kind of just evaded you for whatever reason? It's a good question. I, I I could say a few things that are just like rights issues, and that's kind of a boring story. So I guess it's like, what is there no materials on mm -hmm. at all? My my philosophy with record collecting and yeah just collecting or book collecting is like don't go out seeking things just keep swimming and things will float to you and you can choose what to grab from what floats towards you so i take that approach with downloading material for museum of home video because it's like when the thesis is all of recorded human activity like how do you narrow it down you just you just keep coming across things that float in the ocean you don't really go down too deep and below the water i think like Durfan was actually a big one that we solved that i'm very proud of uh just making that one easier to do it would probably end up being something where there's a print stored in a vault that is too difficult to get into like permissions wise where it's like oh the only print of this that i know of is stuck behind some non-lending policy at an institution somewhere I don't know. It's like most mysteries that I, I feel have been solved at this point. It's like either Studio Canal is the answer to the mystery. <laughs> uh, or, uh, you know, the person to ask passed away. So now you don't know who to, to ask. Those do come up, although I, perhaps they're coming up more for you than they are for me. More probably recent stuff. I mean, the kind of ones I'm looking for, I, I want to be able to screen like it, well, I guess Russ, Russ Meyer is a great sort of yeah. technical example. Like, it's difficult to get those out. Yeah. Now. I mean, I think my white, I've actually, like, doing Lizard Women's Skin this year was, like, a white layout. 
that 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 was one i would love to be able to do roller coaster in 70 even though i know those don't exist those went up in that universal fire back in 08 with most mm-hmm. of the sense around prints but i've been happy to show the dcp of it because i don't know that 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 was my weirdo movie the champion and get people to actually come and sell out screens of so i guess another question for you maybe not on the white whale what's a movie that Actually, you kind of already answered this, but like, is is there? Always, did you always have a personal movie that you grew up with or had with you that you wanted people to see and just were able to get like a good audience for? Because I've had I have two sides of this. Roller coaster was the one I got to work. Bill Heinzman's The Flesh Eater did not work for me. <laughs> wow, and that's a that's kind of a you show it around Halloween because it's set on Halloween, a little bit of a stunty. Yeah, I, I showed it the second year I did Cinematic Void. I showed Harry Guerrero's thirty five millimeter print of it. And I was like, come on, man, it's Bill Heinzman, Night of Living Dead, him writing, starring, directing, and it's set on Halloween. George Romero and Richard P. Rubenstein tried to sue him, but they really couldn't because the character was in the public domain. Like it was, I had this whole pitch and like, I think I did like 30 people in the Spielberg for it. It was like one of my lower attended shows at that time. I couldn't get Flesh flesh Eater to work, but I got Roller Coaster to work. So out of the two ridiculous movies I've championed, Maybe, maybe a little too much. <laughs> uh, quite a few of these white whales that haunted me throughout childhood have been unearthed and ended up in my catalog, like the peanut butter solution, uh, which specifically destroyed me through repeated viewings on HBO as a child. And then all of a sudden, Severin is doing. I did pester David Gregory at Severin once. It was an it was a lunch. I think pre-pandemic where it was like me and uh, Joe Rubin from Vinegar Syndrome and Lisa Petrucci. Maybe she was there from something weird. And Kayla Janice was also there where I was seated next to David. And I just looked at him at towards the end of the lunch. And I went, my man, the peanut butter solution. <laughs> and he said, oh, somebody else told me about that one too. It was probably Kayla. So yeah. he they ended up licensing the peanut butter solution. And again, it sits in my catalog. That's very exciting. White whale stuff. Not from childhood, but definitely from my early days of, oh my God, you can get bootlegs of movies was Remember My Name. That was very satisfying to show uh, to people, Cine Family. Uh, The Abel Ferrara Body Snatchers was another one where I saw it when I was younger and I thought, oh fuck, I would love to show this to more people. And then I think it has found somewhat of an audience. It's pretty fun. So there's just idiosyncratic personal picks that like, uh, or simply irresistible is maybe another one that I got obsessed with a couple years ago and ended up getting 50 people to trudge out on a Wednesday at 10 30 PM in the rain in San Francisco at Alamo. We showed that on 35. That, that was a triumph to get that many people under that many adverse conditions. <laughs> I mean, that that's the funniest thing about LA. You want to know how you can, your, your screening where people are going to know show rain. Yeah, and 50 diehard uh, what's her, Buffy fans came out in the rain to see this strange-ass movie. Have you seen this one? I have not seen this one. Now i got to kind of see. I'll put it on my list of things. Uh, um, it's nom- nominally, it's a rom-com, but it goes in different directions. <laughs> That's my kind of rom-com. My last question for you is, I asked you about the future of repertory cinema. What do you see as the future of Agfa moving forward? Are you going to acquire more movies for the library? Are you going to continue the Blu-ray labels going to continue as the archive plus the scanning and all those things? Like, Mm -hmm. where do you see the bigger picture of Agfa in the next like, like two to five years or something like that? 
something that I really want to get into that I have talked to my teammates about, and it's up, to, it's really up to me to have the extra energy to uh, pull off, would be to somehow compete in the space that Fathom Events does, where we take one thing out and we do it for one weekend only, and we put it on a couple hundred screens all at once, as opposed to gathering the screenings Super Mario Brothers style, where I'm just looking for the coins mm -hmm. from different places. I would love for all the coins to converge <laughs> in one weekend. I don't know if we have anything big enough in our library to really, truly pull that off with. I would love to get to the point where we can acquire things theatrically to do that with, or at, very, at the very least, license things for a short window to accomplish that with, because that's what Fathom does. And I would love to know how to jump to that level of, of um, theatrical distribution, because uh, I think it's just the next level of growth for us. On the disc front um just being able to go to a studio like vendor syndrome or severin and say we would love to license a package of titles we're not there yet but we'll hopefully be there soon with enough consistency like you know with a hosting a podcast you know you got to consistently put out episodes or yes. like you, or don't do it so uh the consistency with scaling up our disc releases i think will definitely help us achieve the fathom event style thing where we're suddenly talking to studios about licensing regularly rather than us being scared about it which i think we are because we don't know how to talk their language oh this reminds me of a why whale thing um you cannot book the rob zombie monsters which i enjoyed and wanted to do a rep screening of really yeah it but i don't i don't know if they have theatrical rights on this movie i don't know because they, they they did not honor the request to book it they said it wasn't possible for whatever reason that's that's interesting though when I would go, I would circle back in a little bit because is it because it was sold directly to streaming? Is that what it was? I, I, it is a game of telephone. I wasn't told directly. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know, but I think that the movie is charming enough that it's like, it's almost a hangout movie, Altman style. It's like, there's no plot. It's just, you're just hanging out with the monsters for two hours. And it is <laughs> over long. It's two hours, but I was sufficiently charmed enough that I would continue ordering popcorn or a beer while watching it. And it's the only time I've ever enjoyed a Rob Zombie movie. I cannot believe I'm saying this for the record, <laughs> you know? I still haven't seen it. I mean, I am morbidly curious about it because it's just like, I feel like at this point he has no fucks left to give. So it's like, I, well, actually, I don't think he's ever had fucks to give. So he's just making what he wants to make for himself. Mm -hmm. I thought it had a what we do in the shadows type charm to it where it's like, okay, this joke didn't land or that joke didn't land, but you're, you enjoy staring at the characters. There's a Nosferatu character that uh, Lily Munster keeps dating at the beginning of the origin story of the movie. And he's like a funny kid. It feels like a Taika Waititi type movie to me. That's, that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. I, the thing I was most excited about was when I saw Daniel Robuck. Daniel Roebuck was playing Grandpa Munster because you, we both have interacted with Daniel and like know how much he fucking loves that shit. Yeah, I mean, he's perfectly cast. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> At least it wasn't Devil's Rejects 3 or something. Yeah. No, I, I feel like, if anything, even without seeing the movie, the one takeaway I have for it is like, God damn, I'm glad to see Daniel Roebuck so happy playing something that he was born and would absolutely, you know, annihilate playing in the best way possible. I think that has answered all my questions. Brett, where can people find you and Agfa on the World Wide Web? 
Uh, AmericanGenreFilm.com is where you can find AGFA. MuseumofHomeVideo.com is where you can find my weekly live stream. I, uh, I'm not too much of a promoter of my own stuff, and I should change that. But Museum of Home Video really is, if you, if you love found footage in any way, whether it's mashups on YouTube, whether it's Everything is Terrible or TV Carnage, or, I don't know, The Soup, if you watch The Soup on E! ever, and they, you loved all the weird found footage pieces they do, it's just two and a half hours of that every Tuesday. And uh, I, I stealing a line from Weird Al from UHF, it's the reason television was invented. You also have a Patreon for um, Museum of Hope video, yes. correct? Yes, and you can rewatch any episode. I'm on episode 156. That was last night. And it's two and a half hours every episode, and it's all killer shit. You could do better than to, uh, you know, ignore. <laughs> Museum of Hope video. Uh, so I don't know. And it's appointment viewing. We don't have that anymore in our lives. And it's a real novelty. And a bunch of uh, my friends and also people who have found the show, it's their Tuesday night ritual. So get in on it. But thank you so much, Brett. Yeah, I've enjoyed this conversation a lot. And I think that you understand every problem that I've had as a venue booker and and have dealt with every problem that exists in the distribution side of things. So it's rare that I get to talk to someone who, who uh, just feels it in their marrow like you do. So I've always appreciated our, our chats. Awesome. Thank you so much. 